This, uh, this whole, this, this discussion class session is basically, um, you guys saw the title. Um, it's about Keter, Adam Kadmon, and Yetzias Mitzrayim. So the real focus of it is going to be more towards the Yetzias Mitzrayim side of things because the Yetzias Mitzrayim story um, happens to be very relevant right now in terms of timing, obviously. And so what I sort of want to do is um, answer sort of like a very big question about the Mitzrayim story and, sh and almost contextualize it, like sort of show you guys where it fits in. And I think that uh, a question that a lot of us either either struggle with overtly or almost like in a subtle way in the background is kind of like how to how to think about the Atias Mitzrayim story as like, is this something which is like a big deal, significant? It seems like it's very significant because we have like, you know, it's, it's what Pesach is all about. And it's a very big story in terms of the actual events of the story, right? It's like an intense story to happen. But then like sort of just to to think about like what's the like how does the story fit into a larger thing like we understand that like when you you know just as, as an example when we learn the Chumash so the Chumash is kind of like it's a it's a book and there's a lot of different things in that book and as we we kind of by, by definition like almost by nature we are forced to read the Chumash in sections um, that's mainly because the whole structure of how we learn the Chumash or encounter the Chumash on a regular basis actually is in sections right we read it in Parshios and in partials, what that kind of means is it's literally just like sections of things. And then every week it's a different section. So that kind of trains your mind to think about the Chumash as if it's like made up of separate parts. And what that kind of leads to is that then it's like, well, different parts of the Chumash have different storylines. And when you're in Beratius, you're learning all about the Avos. And then the brothers, story of Yosef. And when you get to Sefer Shmos, and it's like the Mitzrayim story. And then it's Matan Torah. And there's all these different stories that are kind of going on. And it sort of fragments the whole book. And the tricky thing about that is that it leads to a situation where you actually relate to the overarching theme of the Chumash in a way that's very, almost like disjointed. And what that, in terms of the Mitzrayim situation, what that kind of leads to is like, okay, so now we have like a Mitzrayim story. It's one of many stories that are in the Chumash. And like now we have a Chag that sort of revolves around it and it's all about that. And so we're kind of like, now we're going to focus in on it a little bit and, you know, spend the Chag thinking about that. But is there any way to sort of understand where that story fits into any kind of larger scheme? Or is this kind of like just, well, we have different Chagim, different time periods, different stories, different focuses, and that's just the way that it is. And so what we did last week, for those of you who were in last week's talk, um, you, don't, you didn't have to be there to understand what we're going to do tonight, but last week's talk is going to just be also like a, a useful framework to, help, to sort of help us put this together properly. And so I wanted to sort of start by reintroducing some of the concepts from last week. We're going to do them in a slightly different way to sort of help contextualize the Mitzrayim story, but just to sort of show the thing about the Torah is that because of the fragmentation that we very often are exposed to, either because of things like the way that we learn Torah, like on a weekly basis, we break up the Chumash into all these different parshios, or because we learn a lot of halacha, which is also something which, you know, it's very useful to learn halacha because it teaches you how to live the Torah's lifestyle situation. But like, but halacha also is essentially a system that is fragmented by definition because it just tells you a lot of things to do. It doesn't dig to the root of that. It's kind of like if I would try to teach you how to be in a marriage by just telling you a list of like a hundred things that you need to do, that doesn't really capture the underlying meaning of what a marriage is, just like a lot of activities that you have to do and you just kind of go and do them in an activity level, it's going to be very lacking and feel very empty, essentially. So that's actually a big problem with halacha being taught without the larger principles that the Torah kind of is about. So what that kind of leads to, just in terms of the point I'm trying to make right now, is that there's actually a very big picture, a system of principles that the Torah works, works with and works from and is sort of written 
And then we have all of these halacha things, these fragmented ideas, the things that we do, and all these things that we learn that are almost like outgrowths of that. And so once you know the system, like the, you know, the, the main puzzle, then all the pieces start to sort of fit into place. And so in this case, the, the story of Mitzrayim really is a great example of that because I think a big struggle for a lot of people just at the Seder is to sort of like make it come to life a little bit. Like, what are we really supposed to be doing? Like, so people sort of follow the Haggadah, which is like, maybe a good idea, maybe not a good idea. It seems like some people view the Haggadah as if it's like the sitter. You just have to like dive in the Haggadah. And if you start to run late at your Seder, then you start to just like read a little faster and like you say it to yourself because you have to like say the whole Haggadah. But like, that's not really what the Haggadah is. It's actually a specific tool that is designed to accomplish something on the night that we call Lel Shimurim, which is the, the night of Pesach. So the question is, how do we sort of fit the whole Pesach story and the Atis time story and all that into the larger system of what the Torah is about. In order to do that, they have to sort of know what the system of the Torah is. And so just to sort of remind everyone, and for those who are not here and those who were here, last time we spoke about this concept of Keter and Adam Kadmon. And Keter and Adam Kadmon are kind of like two terms that describe the top of a particular part of the system of the Torah. And by the top, what I mean is it's an analogy, really. Oh, I also just wanted to mention, now that we have a fair number of people here, um, I'm going to talk now for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then we'll take questions. So basically, the main talk will be that. Anybody who wants to leave after that, I mean, you're also welcome to leave whenever you want, obviously. Um, but anybody who wants to, um, who needs to go after 45 minutes and, like, you want a stopping point, that'll be around 8.20-ish. Um, so, but after that, I'll be, I'll be taking questions for whoever wants to ask follow-up questions, anything that I say. So just in terms of the housekeeping scheduling situation. So the top of the system that I was just referring to, it's really, it's not literally the top. It's just like an analogy when we say the concept of the top. What I mean is that you essentially operate as what we call a neshama, which is intangible, immeasurable. You know, you, you, most of you guys have heard me say this, this particular thing before. Like you are a self that is not actually visible. Instead, what we get to see is we look at your eyes, we look at your body, we see you through that. We kind of look to see the self that is almost shining through that. That's what the neshama refers to. The neshama is basically that intangible, invisible self that is shining through the tools that this physical you know, construct represents. And so somehow in this crazy way, there's this intangible thing, which is you, that gets translated through a system of layers and eventually gets expressed as what it is that you're seeing me do right now. It's literally happening in front of you, right? Like I'm talking, I'm sharing, I'm thinking, I'm feeling things. And all those are like parts of the layers that are ultimately helping you to encounter me. But I'm not any of those things. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm not, I'm not any of the aspects of this set of tools. I'm like this self that in, in the writings of the, of the Gemara and the Medrash, I'm like beyond the body and I'm somehow tied into the body and being expressed through the body. So the system that does that process of expression at the very top of it is the first stage of translation, which is what's called the Keter stage. And that's basically what we've mentioned last time. That's your Ratzon. It's your basic will. And so everybody, like every kind of action that you ever take, any form of expression that you ever express, whenever you do anything, starts and is rooted in your will, in your basic impulse to act. And then after you, you, you sort of activate that impulse, you turn on your Ratzon to actually make something happen. So then it starts to get translated to the next stage. It gets turned into ideas and thoughts. And then the idea gets gets really developed in the thought space. And then you start to have conviction, which is where the emotional space comes in. And then ultimately you kind of express that idea out into the world. And every single one of your actions is in some way an expression of that series of stages translating the you through the Ratzon 
into the thought space, into the emotional space, and out into the outside world space. That's true whether you're doing something that's very big, like building a house, or whether you're just sort of saying hello to your wife or your husband, or whether you're just, you know, you're like giving a cashier money. Any action you take is always rooted in some underlying will and goes through this system, and whether it's big or small. So, and again, at the very top is that Ratzon piece. It's very intangible. It's like, it's almost as intangible as you because if you actually try to define what your Ratzon is, what your will actually is, no one knows what it is. It's so confusing what it is that, you know, there's a whole world of scientists that's, that actually suspect that it's just not real. Like some scientists say, well, this whole thing is an illusion and you don't actually have any will and it's just like this weird phenomenon that you actually just, that you, which doesn't exactly exist, thinks that you have that. The Torah's description of it is much more, I, I think, much more expansive, much more um, nuanced, and it's very specific, and we're going to maybe touch on some of the details of that description as we go a little further, but the point is that, like, the will component is so intangible because it's like if you try to go into your mind and climb up your thoughts to the very beginning where you where you started the process of an idea that then you acted on, it's very hard to see or encounter the will in any kind of coherent or self-aware way. Just It's just hard to grasp it. So that's what the word keter references. It basically references your will. And just like you are set up that way, so Hashem is also set up that way. Hashem basically set up a system of tools that he uses to express his intent, what we call his intangible self. So he also uses that same kind of system. It's exactly wired to match. By the way, the reason why any of us can have what we call relationships and we can connect to each other is because we all have the same basic tools. In other words, if you want to relate to somebody on an, on an emotional level, so you see somebody who has liquid coming out of their eyes, so you intrinsically sense that that means that they're feeling some kind of an emotional thing in their emotional space, and you've also had that kind of experience, that's how you can then kind of feel like, oh, me and this person, we can now connect to each other through that shared experience. And if you didn't have the same set of tools as someone, which, by the way, there are people who are born without all the tools, like someone who has autism or different kinds of um, um, formatting of the way their tools are constructed, they actually can't can't connect to other people because of that. So if you ever wonder, just as an example, how it's possible to connect to Hashem, well, one of the preconceptions, one of the basic assumptions of the Torah's perspective is that Hashem has exactly the same setup of tools as you, and that you could actually use that set of tools to connect to Hashem the same way you would to another person. Now, again, there's a lot more to unpack there. How do you do that when you can't, when it doesn't look like Hashem looks like this? You see a person crying, so you know how to do things with that. If you see Hashem crying, well, what does it even look like? Is that when it's raining or something? Like, what, is it, what, is, what does Hashem do when he's crying? So that's a much longer conversation. But just to, in terms of the idea here, that we are constructed in a parallel structure to the way that Hashem is constructed, or has constructed himself, um, and he sort of designed this system of tools to translate his intangible self into all of existence, just like you translate your intangible self into your own personal self-expression in your space. Incidentally, as a side point for those who are curious, that is the meaning of the phrase Tzelem Elohim. Um, so, the point here for right now is that when we look at Hashem's setup of his Ratzon, so Hashem's setup essentially is that he also, the same way that we do this, we have many different ways we express our Ratzon, so Hashem also has very many different ways he expresses his Ratzon. Every little thing that you see happening is one is one line almost going from Hashem's self, quote, all the way through a series of ratzon and then thought development eventually expressed into the physical world as what you see around you. And there's trillions, no, not trillions, quadrillions, quintillions, decillions, like an endless, a huge amount of different kinds of, um, you know, data points in existence that are expressions of Hashem's different will um, points all, all around us. So what we focused a lot on last week was sort of like how 
even though there's such a big fragmentation, so many different will points and data points of existence that Hashem sort of expresses into, into the world, so there is one um, primary one that is sort of behind all of the other ones. And that's also true for us. In other words, every person has like their root activating place, like the, the point within you that kind of drives everything else that you do. So even though you like even whether you're just saying hello to someone or giving money to a cashier it's true that on the surface it just seems like a random will being expressed but it all goes deeper and deeper and deeper to the to the one thing that really motivates every person to be what they are and just like we have one unifying motivator that's underlying all the other things that we have will to do so hashem also kind of works with that with that structure that's what adam kadmon represents and so I want to just sort of, again, so just to sort of summarize that, what that really meant, the concept of Hashem's sort of like unifying background theme of what this whole setting is about is essentially that it's, 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 what we, it's called Adam Kadmon because what it refers to is you. Adam Kadmon means we. An Adam, the construct that we call a person, is the whole point of every other thing that Hashem does in this setting. And then you have to ask yourself this question, which is, well, what are you? And so last time we started to unpack that a little bit also, we have to unpack it a little bit more tonight in order to get to the Mitzrayim story because there's a couple of very important details in terms of understanding what it is that we are that literally lead, almost inexorably, to the story of Itzias Mitzrayim. It's kind of, it kind of had to be that way uh, in a certain sense because of the way that we are constructed. So what exactly are we? So what we spoke about last time a little bit was the way we started the conversation was that you could think of yourself as a fragment of Hashem's self. That's what we are. We are essentially, you think of yourself as a person, that's what we tend to do. I'm just Zev Bannett, this is just who I am. You start off your life very attached to however you experience your sense of self and your character. But as time passes, the more you learn about yourself, you start to intuit certain things that sort of a little bit deepen your idea of who and what you are. So as an example, I think every person has, maybe not every person, depending on your age and your situation, but many people ask this question at some point in their life. They say, where do I go when I die? And what's interesting about that question is that it has the, the two different eyes in the sentence, where do I go when I die? So those two eyes actually refer to two different things. Think about that for a second. The two different eyes refer to two different things. Why is that? Because what you're saying is, well, where do I, the self that is sort of experiencing all existence through this body, where, does, where do I go when I, which now refers to this thing itself, when this thing turns off, what happens to me? Like, I have a sense of self that I exist and that I'm part of, like, I'm, you know, I, I manifest in existence. And then this thing turns off. So when this thing turns off, what happens to me? That's essentially, that's a central question that in some form, it doesn't matter if you're, you're Jewish, not Jewish, like your situation in life. Like, I had a conversation about that question with a person in the airport once, one of the, one of the TSA workers. And the reason was because, you know, since I'm Jewish, so I have these strings hanging out. And he's like, oh, what are those strings? And so I said something about, like, I said, I said some con some comments and concepts that related also to death in some ancillary way, especially since we, we bury people in a talus often. So it was like it related to that. And he was like, that's so interesting. I never thought about like that, like, you know, the, that question in that way. And then he was like, yeah, I always wondered where I go when I die. And I was like, it's a TSA agent, right? Like, of course, everybody on the line behind me was like wondering why we were talking about this. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to get through security. And I figured this was a good way to make sure I didn't get, you know, red flagged, although maybe that was wrong. Um, so why are you talking about death on the way to, through, through security? It's probably not a good idea. So, but that, but that's like you could have the conversation with literally, I think, so many different kinds of people because everyone feels that intuitively. Like, wait, what's the deal here? Like, I know I'm sort of someone, but like the body dies, and people are very scared of death because of that problem. And so, that's essentially like the 
one of many examples of intuitive encounters with this awareness that like, eh, I'm a person, but like, what exactly is it to be a person? And the Torah's description of a person, again, using the same Tzalem Elohim structure, is that you are, in, you are literally a fragment of Hashem's self that has now forgotten the rest of yourself. Like Hashem kind of forgot who he is, erased himself from his own memory, and then blocked off any way to get back to that information just on a natural, in an automatic way, placed that fragment of himself in a setting where now there's going to be a constant amount of change, always ongoing change, and now you're exposed to this change, and it's designed to sort of force you to explore and return to who you really are over time. And so who you really are is really an intangible, endless self, and you're linked to a, to a toolkit, and you're basically constantly trying to use this setting to return to who you are. That's pretty much in some form what we said last time a little bit, and it essentially lays the groundwork for everything else that's kind of going on in the Chumash. So that's, you kind of think all that is like point one of tonight's class. Basically, Adam Kadmon essentially is Hashem's overarching theme of this entire setting. That's the whole, like, that's, that's the theme of the place. This, this place that we're in is the, the, Adam Kadmon literally translates as man is, is um, primordial, almost like man is like first, you know, the first man. It means like, the first principle of being is man. But man, when we say the English word man, doesn't capture what we are. We are a hybridized situation of like an intangible self that is translated and linked to this thing, this body, and being expressed into the world. And that is like the theme of existence. Essentially, it's all about that construct. And then the question is, well, everything else that goes on in the Torah and all, all, all things that happen here, so how does that fit? So last time we spoke about how that construct intersects with change, because the coronavirus is this gigantic changing thing, which like everyone's life is suddenly being massively impacted and shifted in these different ways, and it forces you to sort of assess your relationship with yourself and sort of let go of certain things that you thought were you, like your job or your, you know, your, your regular routine, this is who I am, and suddenly you realize, wait, that's not who I am, like, because all those things are suddenly gone, but I'm still here. So that's what we spoke about last time. But now I think the, the bigger question is to sort of move away from the local events that we're dealing with and look at bigger picture Torah concepts and how they sort of are part of that. So in order to do that, I have to sort of introduce you guys somewhat to like a couple of pieces of the framework here that I think um, we, we kind of just forget a little bit or don't realize how integral they actually are. And so the first background piece of information you have to have is you have to know that the Chumash itself as a book the fact that we read it in a fragmented way, unfortunately, sometimes interferes with our ability to understand it clearly and we'll say, I guess, truly, truthfully, fully truthfully, or as truthfully as we could. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not useful to learn the Chumash in a fragmented way sometimes. You should definitely do that sometimes. We do learn the Chumash every week in a fragmented way. If you want to try something interesting, you could try actually learning the entire Chumash like in one day. You know, I don't know how many of you guys like to read. Different people have different reading uh, capacities and tendencies. But like, if you ever if, if you ever read any book that you were like, like I once read the last the last book of Harry Potter, I read in one day. Uh, now I'll be honest, I skimmed it because like I had no time to really read it. I was in the middle of like regular life, and when it came out, I was like, well, I kind of want to know what happens at the end. So I just took it and I sat with it for like four hours one night. I just ran through it, got most of it, didn't really get it as well as I probably should have until I read it again much, much later in my life and realized, whoa, there's a lot of details here that were pretty important. Not going to ruin any now, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But there were like some major reveals that I had no idea the first time around. Um, but like, 
you could do it though. You could read through a book in one day. When you do that, it's actually very interesting because what it does is it kind of brings all the parts of the book together into sort of like, it's like, it feels much more like one book. When you read a book over a long period of time, very often it kind of fa fragments the story. You forget different characters. You don't know when you saw them. What were they doing there? Like, you know, what, like when did they even get introduced? And so with the Chumash, that's like a very big problem. So I'll give you guys a funny example that I always love to, to think about because there's a bunch of these, but like in Parshas B'Shalach, so there's a character that gets introduced. His name is Yoshua. And Yoshua is like a pretty famous character. Like he, I think people, a lot of people know about him. If you learn the Chumash at all, you probably encountered him. Yoshua is Moshe's protege. Um, so he appears in the story of Amalek. Amalek attacks B'nai Israel at the end of Parshas B'Shalach. And it says that Moshe turns to Yoshua and says, oh, go out and fight with them. And Yoshua's like, all right. And he goes and fights with Amalek. And they have a war. And, and B'nai Israel wins. And da, da 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 A series of events happen after that. And like every year for most of my life, you know, I'm 38 now. Every year I, uh, I was like, um, until I think I was like probably... 31, 32, I was like, oh yeah, Yoshua, like here he is, because like he's in the, he's in the Chumash, so here, here, he show, here he goes, he's going to do his Yoshua thing now, and go fight that war, and then he shows up like 10 other times in the Chumash, you know, like he's with Moshe a lot, and I was like, okay, cool, and I never realized that was the first time he ever shows up in the Chumash, and the Chumash just assumes that you know who that is, doesn't tell you his name, doesn't, like, doesn't tell you his last name, like what his deal is, it's just, he's just a character that just shows up out of nowhere, and it's like, oh yeah, Yoshua, that guy, there he is, and it's like, Moshe's like, here Yoshua, go and fight, and it just doesn't give you any intro, and then later on, Parsha Shlach, similar name, by the way, to Bishalach, so he gets introduced again, and then we, we learn a little bit more about him, his name wasn't actually Yoshua, it was Hoshea, but he's kind of called Yoshua already in Parsha Bishalach, all these like random details start coming up in random places in the Chumash, but since it's been so long since we read that, you literally haven't read Parsha Bishalach in like six months, by the time you get to Parsha Shlach, you don't remember the story. It's like reading Harry Potter chapter two in like December and then chapter 20 is in like, I don't know, December of the following year. Like who's gonna remember who anybody is by that point? So that's 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 what causes fragmentation in the mind. And there's so many crazy examples of places where the Chumash says things that really like, if you actually remember things that happened before that, it's just, it's, you know, like what's happening there? So the reason why that's so important is because the Chumash is actually a story. It has a thread that is running through the entire book. And it's, it's, all, it's constantly assuming that you're remembering that story and why it's telling you what it's telling you. And when you know the backstory, the background that the Chumash is working with, so then everything that you read in the Chumash is going to fit into place. But if you don't, then it's like you're going to think, okay, here's the Pesach story, and then here is this story. And that, that's, what, that's part of the fragmentation. So one thing is obviously it's good to read the Chumash kind of more together. And two, it's important to remember the details in the earlier part of the Chumash that sort of set the stage. So I just want to give you two primary storylines in the Chumash. The most primary and the second most primary, and we're going to focus on the second most primary. The most primary story in the Chumash is actually the first story. Um, that's because the first story is the one that literally sets the groundwork of the rest of the thing. And in the first story is where we get exposed to the concept that I just described. The Keter Adam Kadmon construct comes from that story. And I'm not going to be able to spend the time now to textually show you how it comes out of the story, but essentially the building and accumulating dynamic and pro pro the progression, really the evolutionary progression of the story of creation is all about the process uh, and really sort of like the, the development of the Adam Kadmon theme, which is, again, I mentioned this last week, this is why at the end of the creation story, so Chazal have this saying that they say, which is that sof masev machshavat like that the ending of the story, when Adam is, comes into being, is revealing the original point of the whole story. The trajectory of the story was all about Adam, and there's all these midrashim that also follow that up and emphasize that point. So that's like the primary theme of the whole book. And then we have overlaid on top of that primary story comes the secondary story. And that secondary story is what is defining of the rest of the Chumash as the Chumash struggles over time 
to bring things back to the primary story. Okay, so that's like, this is like a thematic structure in the Chumash. So literally the next story, right? The second story after the creation story, the creation story is kind of broken down into a bunch of sub-stories, but they're all really part of one progression. But the second, like, tot totality story in the Chumash is a very well-known story. It's the story of the Garden of Eden. If we were having a live class, then I would be like, what's the story? And somebody would say it out loud. Um, but we can't do that now, unfortunately. So the story is the story of the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden story, a number of things happen that basically change the path of the storyline of the Chumash in a way that is essentially permanent until the Chumash is able to correct it. And there are a bunch of times the Chumash tries to correct what happened and fails. And then, and when I say the Chumash, I mean really history as the Chumash is basically describing it in, as a book. And then, what, and then ultimately we're still waiting for the story to get back on track. So to say that another way, the story of the Chumash actually was supposed to go in one direction after the first, that whole first part of the story, the creation story. And the way it was supposed to go essentially was that the Adam construct, Adam Kadmon, which is literally the first man that we are all fragments of, so Adam Kadmon, that, that construct, was supposed to now, so he was put into this Ganeda in space, and his role, him and his, the, him in his totality, which means the male aspect and the female aspect working together, were supposed to now, by experiencing friction against each other, with each other, were going to expand and evolve their consciousness to, to go through the process I described earlier, what we call tshuva, to slowly over time essentially remember more and more and more deeply that they are aspects of Hashem and essentially to become more Hashem-like over time. Because the more you remember who you are, the more powerful you become because who you are at the very root of yourself is Hashem. So what they were essentially doing was they were supposed to be on this journey to more, to over time consistently, they started at, let's say, you know, point X and then slowly move up, 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 up and evolve towards greater and greater and greater and greater Hashem consciousness. That's the way things were supposed to be. And then comes the secondary story in the Chumash, and it throws a massive wrench into that, into that mix and sort of takes it way off the rails. So what happens in the secondary story, in case you don't remember, is the story of the Eitz Hadas, and again, I'm kind of paraphrasing here just to get the idea so we can get to the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim story itself, is that you have this situation where um, Adam and Chava, or at that point they're called Ishva Isha, they make a very, very um, distorting type of decision. There's a lot to talk about with the decision they made and how it happened and you know why it did what it did, and okay, too many things there to unpack at once. But the upshot of that decision that they made was that it instilled or gave them a way of thinking that is fundamentally distorting, in the sense that now you can actually look at existence, and instead of sort of always seeing in, in, the, in the background, just like right now, in this picture that you see, as an analogy, there's all this light. So you see the light around me, but you're never paying attention to it. It's like this background hum. It's just there, there's just light. And if I suddenly turned it off, you'd be like, hey, where's the light? But as long as it's on, so you just kind of are used to it, and it's a background hum that you're always aware of, but, and it's very useful, but you're not really paying so much attention to it. So that's how it was with Hashem. In other words, it used to be that Hashem was like this background hum, and you just knew who you were, you knew what you were here to do, and you just operate in a constantly evolving, literally like very consistent process of more and more and more Hashem consciousness, more and more and more deepening of your sense of self-awareness of who you really were, and slowly kind of separating yourself from your body, making your life more about Hashem because you knew that's really where the real you was. But after they made that, that decision in the story of the Garden of Eden, so then it created the situation where now you actually have the capacity to essentially mimic the decision that they made. And what can you do now? You can choose to, make, to take actions and make decisions that actually reduce and even block out Hashem's presence from your sense of consciousness and experience yourself as fully cut off from Hashem and that you are just an isolated, independent entity. 
You have the ability to make that decision. In regular psychology, that's called the ego. When you very, when you fixate on your ego in a, in a very intense way and become very arrogant, all that means is just describing the dynamic I just, I just painted, which is where you essentially begin through your, your decisions, your life habits. So you basically start to create a situation where you are more and more and more and more and more isolating yourself from your real self, cutting yourself off from Hashem, and you can also do that with other people. Notice that the more you have gaiva, the more you are, have arrogance in your life, the more it actually causes you to be disconnected from other people and makes you more unable to actually connect to others. Because it's like, well, other people are like, they're, they're inferior or, or sometimes in your mind you're very insecure, which is why you're arrogant. Sometimes we're arrogant because, I mean, really almost always we're arrogant because we are insecure. You have gaiva because you look at somebody else and say, well, I'm in a competition with that person, so I have to sort of be above them. And so I'm going to, I'm going to um, try to find a way to put them down or make myself feel like I'm above them so I can feel better about myself. You're getting a sense of self, not from Hashem, which is the root of who you are, from your own internal self. You're getting a sense of self from um, contrasting yourself to other people on the external level. It's like, well, I'm smarter than that person or I'm funnier than them or I'm better looking than them. So, and whenever you do that, you're essentially now separating yourself from a sense of yourself and Hashem being the root of who you are and starting to attach yourself to these kinds of other externalities to start to feel that you're someone based on that. So that distorted way of being is the fruit of the Garden of Eden. In other words, that's the outcome of that story. So your ability now to essentially um, choose, in the beginning you choose on purpose, over time you choose more and more and more by habit, you're choosing to actually um, cut yourself off from Hashem's presence and experience the world as if it's an empty place and you're just you. Now. That's basically what that story did. That's a secondary theme and the secondary storyline in the Chumash that everything else after that story is essentially a reaction and an attempt to undo the damage of that story and try to bring things back to the Gan Eden previous to the actual decision that they made in that, in that context. So, a couple of things that you need to know. One is that in the previous setting, like I said, when you before this story happened, then you could actually very consistently expand your awareness, become more and more and more Hashem presence, conduit, you know, being. You could be more and more and more of, a, of an extension of Hashem's being into the world. And then it would just be like incrementally increasing over time. And that would, that's like a million years long, 10 million, a trillion years. Like the amount of time that that goes on for is endless. That's what was supposed to happen. Instead, when it got derailed, so we got put into this like side pocket in the story, where now we're sort of stuck in this small space for a period that's described by Chazal as being 6,000 years, the Gemara and Sanhedrin, and basically it describes that it's like that's that's the amount of time that we're going to be in this little pocket. And then, after that's done, so we're going to go back to that original trajectory of the primary story and then kind of incrementally keep going up, up, up in that way. That's what we call Olm Haba. It's for trillions of years, never really ends. And so that's like, that's the real life. So what's funny about that whole framework is what I kind of just told you is that we are on like a little stop. We're on a pit stop. It's like we were on a bus and we pulled over at like a rest stop for about 6,000 years. And now on that rest stop, we're like, oh, should we get on the bus yet? Oh yeah, I'll go, I'll take a step towards the bus. Oh, one second, I just gotta go get, run back and get one more thing. Oh no, the bus now. And it's like, that basically leads to what you experience in your own process now, even though you are, you're still a fragment of Hashem trying to do this incremental expansion, greater self-knowledge, greater self-awareness, greater connectivity, greater ahava, ability to connect and bond with others. You're trying to do that, but in so many ways along the way, you keep making mistakes and then causing there to be distance and fragmentation and separation and pain. And so instead of it being this kind of trajectory, it's like up, down, up, down, up, down, all these different um, oscillations. And it takes you, and overall, we hope that your general trajectory is up, 
but it's uh, it's really something which oscillates significantly now because of that whole story. And that story is the backbone of everything else that happens in the Chumash. Because after that story happens, so you'll notice there's a massive decline in terms of the characters that are playing out in the story, right? Like you have basically have Adam, and then you have his descendants, and like, most of his descendants are off the rails. They're distorting left and right. They're killing each other, doing all kinds of things that essentially are about viewing other people as if they are objects. They are things. They're getting the same thing as the arrogance dynamic I described earlier. When you when you are being arrogant towards somebody else, you are fixating on one aspect of their character, of their tools, and you're using that as a competitive element to sort of say, oh, I'm better than that, and then you're going to compete with them on that area. So that's essentially viewing people as things. So we call objectifying people. So that's what all the characters do, except for these little bursts of light along the way. Adam's third son, Shait, is the one who's kind of like tried to fix that. And then you have this, then you have the, the next, the, you know, the, there's a bunch of generations of people. And then you get to Noah's time period. And Noah is, again, he's like this little burst of light who's supposed to be helping out. But Noah is also, even Noah is kind of like this, he's a, he's a kind of a gray character. In some ways, he really is about trying to maintain the Hashem story that we call his story, history, right? He's trying to maintain Hashem's story, which is like to bring Hashem into existence again and remind everybody like who we are and what we're really here for, like what, what we are really. And then everybody else kind of doesn't work with that. And Noach, is, he's gray because he sort of keeps it to himself a lot, doesn't have really the, he's very Noach. The word Nach means to sort of be at rest. He's basically like this passive player in the story. And he's the last of a series of people that had any chance of really reminding the world what this was all about. That didn't work out so well, but it was enough that Hashem was like, okay, we'll salvage the Noach story. And then everybody else has, is going to go through this flood thing. Again, I'm kind of taking all these stories now. Um, I'm not butchering them, but I'm going to ram through them in a certain kind of way to get to where we need to get to. Um, just so you, so you see the build up here. And then basically it continued. Next next set of generations, and it happened again. Noah had one son who was shame that kind of went okay, but the rest of those people started to take it off the rails. You had these, the, his whole family kind of started to spread out. All these different descendants, Mitzrayim and Kush and all these different people. And then basically what happens is you get to this big, big, big flag story in the Chumash. Such a short story and such a flag. Okay, that story is the story of Migdal Bavel. Nine took him long. Uh, could not be, like, if, if we had to pick a third story that was like another gigantic shift in the Chumash, that would be the story. Because at that point, what happens is Hashem basically fragments all the different people. There was one, there's just one giant family of people at that point. Everyone was kind of in the same family, same language, same culture, same vibe. And then Hashem fragments all of them. I'm not going to discuss right now what happened in that story, why he did that. But that fragmentation leads to a situation where now you have different cultural clumps in the world, what we would call today nations, they're really just clumps of people who all have shared culture. Um, it's kind of a, also a longer discussion by itself. But Hashem fragments everybody in that way. And then the question is, well, once you have cultural clumps that all have such different languages, different ways of being, well, how are you going to bring the world back to what it was really for? The whole point of this was to have these Adam constructs that are going to be channels for intangible, endless presence into a physical, finite world. And like, how are you going to do that? If you don't have, if most of these people can't even relate to each other anymore, they're so fragmented now that, you know, even if one group thinks something, the other group will never be able to understand anything about that. So basically what Hashem says is now we have to up the game, we have to change the game, whereas before we had all these people who were kind of individual bright spots through the chain that were kind of appearing on and off, he says now what we have to do is we have to construct a group of people, we'll call them a family also, a cultural clump, you can call it also, and they're going to now operate in the cultural clump space to try to be the group that their whole like purpose is going to be about the story. All every every clump has its like different, um, more ancillary, more piece of the story type of role. But there is going to be one family that their whole energy in the space 
is going to be this story. And so basically the rest of the Chumash is Hashem slowly creating and developing that family. And so you'll notice, for example, like, so that family, it goes through a bunch of stages. You have Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, then you have Yaakov's 12 sons. And each of these things has incredible significance. When you're learning the Chumash, so like, these are not small details. You ever wonder, like as an example, in Parshas Vayetze, so there's this, all these Midrashim that fixate on how um, Leah and Rachel, they all, they both knew that Yaakov was supposed to have 12 sons. So they were like fighting over who's going to have them. This is a Midrashim that, that describe that. And it's like, it's like, why was that even a thing? Like, why is that a big deal that he's only going to have 12 sons? First of all, why, why, like, 12 is a lot of sons. And then, like, like that was, like, a plan of some kind. Like, they kind of were like, okay, here's the plan. We're going to have 12 sons. How do we allocate this? Well, there's four wives. Like, it's such a weird situation and to, like, know that coming in, that there's going to be 12 sons, and then to fixate on that. And, like, we're so used to that medrash because, like, we know there were 12, and it's the 12 tribes. They're so famous. Do you ever wonder why there were 12 tribes? Like, there's so many Medrashim that focus on that. I think we, hinted, we mentioned this a little bit last time. But, like, there's, like, the Medrashim says that the 12 tribes each had their own tunnel going through the Yamsuf when the Yamsuf was split at the, at the Red Sea. Or the whole Eretz Yisrael is organized according to the 12 tribes. Like, this 12 tribes thing is very significant. So, like, and that's all part of the developmental phases of Hashem sort of taking of Avram and then Yitzchak and Yaakov and slowly constructing this family, and there's a whole organization to that structure. And then as that organization continues to unfold, it gets to the Mitzrayim story. Now, here's the funny thing about the Mitzrayim story. The Mitzrayim story was not just like something which happened. I'm sure you guys remember that in Parshat Lechacha, there is a story there called the Bris Ben Abisarim, where Avram, where Avram is specifically told by Hashem, I am going to do this Mitzrayim thing to these people. Now, when you learn that story the first time without everything I just said, so how are you going to learn that? You're going to be like, okay, here, this is like the famous Mitzrayim story, and this is like, a prophecy and like it's going to happen it's Egypt they don't know where it's going to be at the time but like but once you know everything I just said so what happens next now it's like this becomes a puzzle piece in the developmental process of this family and Hashem has and in two ways one is that like now you know the Mitzrayim story is playing a role in the development but another part of that is that Avram has to be told that in other words part of the development of the Avram story as the originator of this family is that he actually has to know this Mitzrayim story is going to happen because him knowing about that is integral to the process of development. So like the Chumash makes a very, very big point about telling you that, it, that, that Hashem is telling Avram that. There's probably other things that Hashem told Avram that we never hear about because they were never written in the Chumash. But like that piece is very important. It has to be stated in the story, just like every other piece in the development of this family is being stated in the Chumash. So you watch this unfolding of this family. And then you actually get to the Mitzrayim story. And the Mitzrayim story with so many details of what happened there, there's you know, a lot of parts of the way that it unfolded. But basically, the Mitzrayim story is a story of abuse of a people. And it's an incremental abuse. It's basically the like there's, at first, the, the, the B'nai Israel family that's there. So they're first kind of like on top. And then slowly, incrementally, they get, they get piled on more and more and more abuse until they're eventually placed on the bottom. That's kind of how we usually tend to think about it. But I want to just... Um, like say, really pull out two other details from the story to sort of show you where it fits into everything. And then we'll try to wrap up the, you know, the overall uh, theme and the talk here. So as, the, as they kind of go through this process, so the Medrash describes all the different kinds of abuse that was put on them. And then in, in Sefer Dvarim, the story of Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim itself, the location, the place, is called the, a very interesting phrase, a phrase that's like, you know, it's almost like when it, get, when it gets thrown in, I think it's in Parsha's, Parsha's um 
um, Ekev maybe, or, or um, Vayeschanan, one of the two first parashios, the second and third parashios of Dvarim, where the Torah just like casually throws out this phrase. What is Mitzrayim called? It's called the Kur Habarzel. That's the phrase the Torah uses. Kur Habarzel literally means like a furnace that you put metal into to purify it. And it's like, why would the Torah call it that? That's a very weird thing to call, to call Mitzrayim. You throw in another piece of information there, you'll notice the word Mitzrayim literally means Meitzarim, which means narrow space, like a, like a pressure cooker. But I want to sort of really use a, a third um, data point to like sort of highlight what we're going to talk about now, which is that there's a perush on the Shulchan Aruch called the Nesivos, on, the, on Choshen Meshbat. And Choshen Meshbat is all the halachos of like stealing and, you know, things that are between people. Um, it's in Hilchos Neziken, which is basically about damages. And so in Choshen Mishpat, this parish, the Nesivos, he's pretty famous for arguing with another parish called the Ktsos. Anybody who learned in Yeshiva has heard of that argumentative pairing. Um, but the Nesivos actually also wrote a Haggadah. And a lot, you'll find a lot of Rishonim and Achronim wrote Haggadahs. That was something which they did. What it means they wrote a Haggadah, it means they took the Haggadah text that essentially we get from the Gemara and the Mishnayos, and then they basically wrote a parish explaining different kinds of things. And I first encountered the Haggadah of the Nesivos when I was in a shear of somebody, a teacher of mine from a long time ago. His name was Rabbi Avram Willig. And he basically brought the following question up, and he asked it this way, which I think we're going to use to really um, contextualize everything we just said. The question that he asked, which is the question of the Nesivos, is we spend so much time on the Seder, or on the Seder night at the Seder, like sort of trying to thank Hashem for all the things that he did to sort of save us from the, from the Mitzrayim story. But the Nesivos asks, he's like, well, if you've actually been tracking the story in the Chumash, so obviously you could ask right away, well, Hashem is the one who sort of started that whole thing. Like, he literally put us in that space and then forced us to experience this horrible Kur like, The Torah says it. Like, it's right in your face. He's like punching you with that. Here's the Kur Barzel. I'm going to put you in a pressure cooker, like, in a fiery furnace that's going to purify you. And it's like, okay, like, um, don't, don't save me from that. Maybe just don't put me in that. And that's how the Nesivos asks the question. And the, the reason, like, it's, it's, a, it's a good question to ask in general. I, I think we already have enough puzzle pieces here to start to unpack why that question doesn't even really get off the ground once you know the storyline of the Chumash, which is really what the Nesivos says when he explains the answer to the question. And that's really that you think about the Mitzrayim story as like this horrible thing that Hashem saved us from that is completely missing the point. The Mitzrayim story is not an event that happened to us that Hashem saved us from. The Mitzrayim story is part of the development process of us as this family that we are. And it wasn't like this thing that ha- that happened as an accident or because of other people being bad. This was like told to Avram in the beginning. That's why Avram gets told that up front. Because it's like, this is a piece. It's not, it, it's, it's woven into the fabric of the process of the evolution of our people. And there's a reason why it's in there. It's, it's the piece itself has a role that it must play. That's what we're going to try to develop now. But I just want you to just to, hopefully that was clear enough. The point I'm trying to make right now is that the answer to the Nesivos' question is that Hashem is not saving us from Mitzrayim that like happened to us. It's that Hashem put us in Mitzrayim as part of a much larger story that when you see that whole progression and sort of see where it's going, so then the story all makes so much sense. Then you also can understand what it is that we're celebrating on Pesach. Like, what is Pesach even about? Because Pesach is really just taking one slice of the story and being like, okay, now we're going to celebrate this part of the story. But it's not celebrating the, the being saved. You'll notice that the, the matzah that we eat, the, which is one of the things that, one of the big mitzvahs of the time of Pesach, is like, it's lechem oni, which means it's like, it's a lot of it is about celebrating the pain that we experienced and also the geula. But we don't just talk about the, the being saved. We talk about like the pain and there's so much 
so much retelling of the story of Mitzrayim about the different things that happened that were horrible. When you look at the Haggadah, the Haggadah is actually supposed to be referencing just different stories that you're supposed to know, or if you don't know them, then the person who's running the Seder should know them and tell them over and be like, when the Haggadah says this, it's referencing this story and then tell that story of what happened in Mitzrayim so people can actually sense both the darkness and the movement towards the, the, the freeing of Mitzrayim, which is the Me'afela Laora, and it's like, you know, it's, it's, starting, it's starting with the bad things and going towards the good things. That's the whole point. It's like, you need this entire story because it's really, it's not about the end. It's not about the being saved. So that's like a very, very important reframing of this whole situation. So now, just the, so now the question is, well, why exactly did this Mitzrayim story have to happen to us? In other words, it was if it was all pre-planned and it was actually the actual creation of the story itself was also integral to the process and it's not just the ending, why does this have to happen to us? And you'll also notice that, that question has a tangential element to it, which is the Mitzrayim story is not the last time this kind of thing happened to us. It's also not exactly the first time, by the way. The very first Mitzrayim type story that happened to us was actually in Parshas um, Vayishlach, Vayetze and Vayishlach, with the story of Lavan. So if you read that story carefully, you'll notice that there are a bunch of elements that are similar to the Lavan story as there are to the Mitzrayim story. And you also notice that in the Haggadah, the, the Haggadah itself references statements of Chazal that talk about Lavan as being almost like the first person who tried to erase us as a people from this place. So that, that's the reason why, because the first version of the Mitzrayim story actually was the Lavan story. But again, that's a tangent, and it, it also references all the other pogroms and bad things that happened to us from then until now, which is like also all different Mitzrayim-type stories. So the question again is, so why do we go through this story? Why was it premeditated and planned out in this way? And what was the point of the story? Okay, so the way to answer that question, so it's actually in the, in the, it's in the Adam Kadmon framework itself that you have to look. So when you look in the Adam Kadmon framework, that large framework of Hashem's overarching theme of all of existence, so, second, sorry. Um, so that, that framework is really, um, is where the, the theme kind of just, almost like it's, it's yelling itself out loud. It's just right there. It's also why the Torah calls it the Kur HaBarzel. So the issue is that, like we said before, the, the, the pattern of existence until our family got you know, launched with the Avram story is that we were, Hashem was basically trying to keep people on the rails. Like, at least there should be one person here and there thrown into, into history who's going to be able to sort of see what's going on choose Hashem and bring back intangible Hashem consciousness back into existence to make people stop thinking that they are their bodies, they are their sensations. Once everything got fragmented in the Migdal Babel story, so now Hashem needed a family to, to solve that problem. But now the question is, well, how do you construct a family that's going to actually make that their whole essence? Because you can have like, you know, we had Noah's family and Noah had like one person in there. His job was, you know, he went and he, uh, he, like Shem was basically the guy that was like, can be more about Hashem. And you'll notice Shem shows up in the story of Avram. His name is Malki Tzedek in Parshas Vayera. And he's, it's like, an Avram knew Shem and Yaakov knew Shem. Shem was like the guy before them that was very Hashem oriented. But, but Shem was not doing our job. He was not, instead of us, like we were, we were doing our thing instead of him. And it's because you could have, you had these families where like one person would kind of like do one thing and then Cham, he went really off the rails the other way, and Yefes, and like every family was fragmenting until then. And so how do you create a, a unified group of people who are going to make this their whole essence? So that's essentially the process that Hashem started to generate. So how did he do it? He started with one person, which is Avram, and then everybody who's part of the Avram story is now going to be like, you know, um, essentially extensions of that. 
And so it starts with, like, that's what the, all the different covenants were. It was like, okay, we're doing an official deal now. It's not going to be this, like, random, ad hoc kind of thing, like, shame, you'll be a guy now, or, like, or Chase, or Adam, or Noah. It's like, there's going to be a deal now. There's going to be a plan, and we're going to construct it around the land. And it's like all these different puzzle pieces start to come into place that are designed to anchor this family in, in, the, in the world in a way that's going to make sure that they are really about this on the level of their essence. So, and, and, and you need a certain kind of person for that, and we have to talk about who Avraham was and why he was chosen for this and whatever. Avraham really, is, he chose Hashem. That's kind of what the, what the underlying theme was with Avraham. But the point is that as you go through the process of the family, so what's actually happening is Hashem is kind of training all of them, unifying them and bonding them through all these different things. And it turns out that the sharing of a trauma like the Mitzrayim story, the Kur Habarzel, literally forged the people. Because what it does is, it basically creates this common consciousness where it's like, and, and again, you need that entire thing. It's not just one piece, but like these people who like, they remember who they are. They know that they came from this guy Avram. They know there was a deal. And they know there was a promise of this story. Like, they, by the way, like the same way that a lot, that there's a lot of places in the Chumash where the, the, the family knows about Avraham, like when Moshe first comes to them and he says to them, I was sent by Eloke Avraham, Eloke Yitzchak, like the family, the family, B'nai Israel, they know that, who that is, they recognize that, they, they understand that. And then it's like, well, part of the Avraham storyline, everyone knew this, the Baris Ben Abisarim, like that, they, they were told they were going to have to go down to Mitzrayim. And that's also why there's, Yaakov even thought that Lavan was Mitzrayim because he heard about it. He knew they were passed on this tradition that this Mitzrayim story was going to happen. So everyone knew it was going to happen. And then as it was happening, so they were living through this. And so they were kind of like, okay, we got to like, we got to like hunker down and like go through this process to become what we're supposed to become. And so going through the trauma of that, it forges and bonds these people with each other and then also with Hashem. But you'll notice, you know, one of the crazy parts about these types of trauma stories is that they're extraordinarily difficult. A lot of people didn't make it through. And there's a lot of details to talk about with the story, like the, the different people who got left by the wayside, the people who failed and struggled and didn't make it. And there's many different aspects of the story that, we, that really need to be unpacked here. But the point is, that on the, on, the, on the whole, the idea here was to sort of try as best as Hashem could, given the raw materials that he had to work with, now that we were in this side pocket of distorted perspectives, where now we get attached to all kinds of things. So Hashem basically was trying to create a forging context that would, that would lead to a bunch of people making the choice to make their lives about the Hashem conduit process. And that's really what this is. And so the reason why not everybody succeeded in that process is because when you're experiencing pain, for example, so you have a huge challenge. You know, I, I've seen, I mean, we've all seen the divergence of how people can deal with pain. When you're dealing with pain, there's really two ways you can relate to it. You can relate to something which is like a, a, a very painful warning where it's like, this is so bad, this is so bad. And you basically try to react by getting away from it. And you either, you either run, you, you, it's flight. Or you try to fight it, and like you're, you know, you try to, you try to, you, you're. But either way, it's like this. It's, it becomes very central to your life. And then there's a, a way of dealing with pain in which you sort of view pain as a signal. You allocate the appropriate amount of attention to it to deal with whatever it is signaling, whatever unhealthy, distorted thing in your life is leading to the pain. You have to deal with it, but you don't let it dominate you. You don't let it make you. Don't you don't make that who you are now. You kind of have a relationship with pain that you know what pain is. Pain is essentially a signal that something is out of whack somewhere in the character. But you don't let it go further than that because you know that all signals that you're getting in the setting are really, in the Adam Kadmon framework, are just triggers to help you access Hashem's deeper truth that you are really an aspect of. 
So you have to sort of learn how to deal with pain in an accurate way. So as I'm sure you guys have heard stories of like this, I had a friend um, who actually was very, very, he, he became pretty famous because of this situation where he was going through a particular illness and um, he dealt with it in a way that is so rare. I mean, he spent like the, he was ill for I think like eight years and he spent that time, like he was more there for other people than they were there for him during that time. He was on his email constantly. He was always taking phone calls and everyone was obviously also, they were helping him too because to have that level of human connection was obviously very helpful for a person who's ill. But like he was a not, he was a machine in a certain way. Like he just, he kept trying to help other people and share with them because he was like, I think he sensed that as he was in this dark, dark space to find the connection and to find the love and to find the, 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 the fusion of himself with, with the, with that, that's beyond his body. So it gave him so much power because he's like, I'm not my body. I'm not my illness. I'm way beyond this. And so he was kind of tapping into the neshama side of things in a way that was sort of helping him to contextualize the pain and then use it to become more Hashem connected and more other, other neshamos connected. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. So, but you can also go the other way where when you have pain of some kind, so then the pain can dominate you and completely control how you live and actually cause you to disconnect from other selves and become very, very fragmented and disjointed and even essentially darkened because you can't see anymore because all you see is the narrow space of the pain, the Mitzrayim of the pain that you're experiencing. And so what all that kind of leads to is this very, on the one hand, it's like a scary result, but also a very empowering result at the same time. The Mitzrayim story is about choice. It's about you basically choosing how you're going to deal with pain. Are you going to deal with pain by essentially um, getting fixated on it, letting it dominate your life, and doing everything you can to avoid it, run from it? And that's essentially what, when we say that some people in Mitzrayim didn't make it out, so there were people who were unable to make the choice because it, it was very hard for them. And we got to talk about what happens to those people, you know, people who die, and there's a, so much to talk about there in terms of death. But in terms of what the story is about, so in, the con in contrast, there are people who are able to make the choice and say, this is so hard, I'm going to push through another level, another, like, go, go a little bit further. And basically, that was, the, that was the alternative choice. And then ultimately, the people who then were forged through that process were basically people who now were, were bonded with Hashem in a very intense way. And again, all the pieces of that puzzle of the story are all part of that. Like when Hashem does all these things that, that are so, sort of like above nature, and these people who are pushing themselves to be part of this, as B'nai Israel were, and they see that happening, I mean, that's also very bonding. It's kind of like, you know, if you're, every, every movie where there's, um, you know, I'll give you an example, like there's a movie called Speed, where there was a, it's a pretty old movie, where there was a bus that had a bomb on it, and there's like, there's the main characters, a woman and a man, and they're both on the bus, and basically, of course, you know what happens by the end of the movie, they fall in love, and why? Because they are both struggling to stay above the pain, to, to be whole and connected and essentially deal with what's happening without getting consumed with fear and, and being paralyzed by it. They're going to try to rise above that and they're sharing that experience with each other. And then, you know, one saves the other at one point, then the other one saves the one. And like, you know, that, that process of doing that type of saving, so it creates bonds between people. So of course, then they made a, a sequel, Speed 2, and everyone knows how that plays out. Every sequel always has the two people are not really into each other anymore in the sequel. And then, you know, then as the movie plays out, they end up being together again at the end. And who knows what the third movie has, they get divorced or whatever. So, but the point is that like, that's essentially describing the same mechanics of what the story is, is, is articulating, but with even more beyond that. Because if we wanted to make it really parallel to our story, then the speed characters would have to have already been married before, like 20 years ago, and then kind of like had to go through a long process where they're developing their relationship and then go through this thing. 
And it's like, that's, cause that's what we're talking about. All the story p puzzle pieces up until now were essentially laying the groundwork to now we have this family. And now this family's whole essence revolves around this theme. And the theme essentially is that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how painful things become, I have this well inside of myself that I can tap into from the past and from, and, and from my own personal like process and growth that I can now sort of rise outside of the darkness and be like, I'm gonna still keep it together and use that as a chance almost like to connect even more to Hashem and to other selves. And that's why, as a family, this storyline, the story of Mitzrayim, is the attempt to construct an, a, a cure, an antidote, to the secondary theme of the story of the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden story essentially is distortions, where there's all these different ways you can experience the character, and all the pain and signals that you get, you can experience them as very in your face, just like positive signals, you know, whether it's sexual stimuli or food stimuli or other types of things that you get fixated on in terms of the character that you're playing. So those are all more positive things, getting a lot of money. These are things that pull you into a narrow space also, but we view them as positive because we don't feel pain, we feel pleasure from those things. And similarly, in contrast, you have the painful ones, but they're both doing the same thing. They're both narrowing your space and pulling you into a place where now you don't see all the parts. You lose the background hum of Hashem's presence even more than you already are missing it. And then it kind of brings you to a more and more and more distant place, a more and more isolated ego place over time, unless you take control of it and stop that from happening. So the process of creating this family was a phase in the, and there's more development, by the way, after the story unfolds, the, the, the next phase is the, is the Torah story at, at Har Sinai, and then going to Israel story. And you'll notice as an example, that the Medrash describes that at the Har Sinai story, so Hashem actually undid the story of the Garden of Eden. That's actually what it says in the Medrash, because what's happening is the text there describes how like these people were sort of healed and cured in, in different kinds of ways and the distortive perspectives that came from the story of the snake in the Garden of Eden. So they were basically removed. And then the people saw things again clearly, and they were, and now it's like, okay, this is our job. We're going to now be the family that does this Hashem thing in the world, and that was that was the whole idea. And then the the story of the of the golden calf happens, and how that happens is very similar, analogous to the Garden of Eden story, sort of recreating the distortive process. And then the Chumash continues in its attempt to sort of the family sort of like had an up and then a down, and to try to bring the family on track more. And we are still in that game right now. We are playing out that that storyline of like trying as a family to bring that original storyline back into its full prominence and so that all the people in the world remember as they live their lives, as they do the, the things that they're doing, to remember the background theme, the Adam Kadmon theme, that we are all endless selves. And there's a lot of that going on. You see a lot of that success because, like I mentioned last week, there's a lot of people in the world, definitely in the first world of Western, Western perspectives, that do view people as special in some form. That is a very, very big step forward from a lot of the more distorted perspectives that people are things. Uh, there's also plenty of cultures that still view people as things. Communist cultures view people as things. Primarily, actually, the Middle Bubble story was the original communist culture, incidentally. Um, but the point is that, like, the ability to sort of see people as things still exists, but we're really moving people more and more and more towards that uh, that original storyline where we can get people toward to, to a perspective where now it's like, okay, we know who we are, we remember who we are, and that's why what our teachings basically describe is that towards the end, if we get towards the what's called the most Mashiach Olm Haba phase, is when the storyline really fully corrects, and there's like, okay, like now everyone kind of knows who we are, 
We're going to really fit, like focus on maintaining that awareness, and we're going to build the world around that perspective now in a much more active way. That's the most Mashiach phase going into Olam Haba, where then we're literally picking up where we left off in the Garden of Eden story, and then going on and on and on and on and on forever. So that's basically the placement of the Mitzrayim story in the process. I, hope that was, I know there was a lot of things there. Usually when I teach the Chumash stories, I go into the stories. So it's like we could do like a, like a long series. The website that I'm trying to launch hopefully in the next few days has a series about the Chumash, which is basically story by story by story, painting it and then sewing it all into one you know, continuous thread also, which then you start to really see a lot of the details, how they play out. So this was more of a macro view, like a crash course perspective, but the idea essentially is the same. And um, even if you don't see every detail in the Chumash played out now, there's so many. The Yosef stories are hugely important in the, devel- in the development of the Mitzrayim story, for example. And we have to talk about the Makos and all these different things. What is Chametz? These are all part of the same macro theme. But in terms of the uh, basic concept of what ETS Mitzrayim is, that's where it fits into that. Okay, so that's basically the, uh, the main idea.